Ladies and gentlemen, this live appearance is not intended for younger listeners, so please keep their impressionable ears away. The opinions expressed do not reflect certain institutes that the participants are a part of. Anywho, we are proud to present the eighth wonder of the world, the Bride of Kong. Welcome! Welcome everyone to Two Dudes One Double Feature, the show in which two dudes talk two films, and that is about it. I am Dude One, Richard. Dude Two, Joe. And welcome to the season three finale! Woo! I mean, like, the seasons in in reality, they don't, really don't matter, because it's not like we take any sort of, like, real hiatus... Or anything yeah. like that. But yeah, we like true. to... I mean, just the fact that we've made it to 30 episodes is kind of mind-blowing, honestly. Because any other attempt... We've tried... Listen, I'm going to get slightly sentimental, but also just <laughs> we're slightly gonna, We're going to get personal here. I'm, I'm excited for this. We, we've had several attempts at maybe make trying to do a YouTube thing and try to do, you know, some type of podcast. And we've had a good time trying to do all of that. But this is clearly the most successful attempt that we've had thus far, I would say. And it's the best one, I think, if I'm being honest. You know, I just think it, it's just, we it succinctly is, you know, what it is. We talk about two films and then, you know, a bunch of other that's nonsense. It. <laughs> uh, uh, that's it. If you Listen, if you ever want to just do the intro, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man. Uh, I mean, uh, you know... Uh, I I'm just gonna do, do my part just fine. You do you par- your part just fine. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna change a winning formula at this rate. <laughs> so far, winning at least. So far, we do appre- we do appreciate uh, to anyone that's listening uh, to anyone that has been listening. Thank you so much. No, thirty episodes. Three. It's worth it. It's worth celebrating three seasons, thirty episodes. It's very exciting. And as I as always, I always like to ask this: How are you, dude? Too. Just fine. I mean, I went grocery shopping. I went to the dentist. Yeah, like, (laughs) there hasn't been much going on, honestly. It's like, it's funny because we recorded our our last episode, you know, A Dragon Calls. And I have, as of us recording, I haven't edited it yet. So We literally did it days ago. But you know what? It's all good. We're on on top of this. No, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like giving you guys somewhat of like a hint what goes on behind the scenes. Even if it's not amusing to you, just to give you an idea of what we do, like, <laughs> there's you no know what you know what. There's actually a lot, admittedly, that goes into this episode. And we, I feel like, into the show in general, because we, compared to especially other podcasts, I mean, not to say because you know, if I'm being honest, I'm not all that familiar with the whole process or how anyone else does it. But first and foremost, Joey and I don't live together, nor are we near each other. By any means, like so, that alone is already like a hurdle that we have to get through. And I was thinking about this, 
the other day, like just thinking about other podcasts and, and how they operate. And I just feel like most of them, I'm assuming, are just like a bunch of guys in the same room talking about stuff, which these days obviously is a lot harder to do because of the pandemic. And, you know, obviously, unless you're living together or you've been able to like kind of create a bubble of people that you can interact with, you can't really do that. So a lot of people have started adapting to like you know, talking on Skype or online somehow and then editing or putting it together that way. For us, we've had to do that even before there was a, a pandemic. We've had to do that, you know, from the jump. So this is something that we were used to. Plus, at the same time, just I'm, I'm basically patting or patting myself on the shoulder and your shoulder as well, virtually. <laughs> but it's just like the things that we go through in order to get the show to be as good, in my opinion, as it is. It's it's actually pretty exciting. Long story short. No. Yeah. I mean, we are it, it is actually kind of impressive considering how small of an operation we are. Like we have, you know, maybe at most like four people working on most episodes and at least three of them. I'm not going to put myself in that, but three of them do very hard work uh, putting the episodes. I mean, I just get shout out to John and Kenny first and foremost, because we've had an original piece of a, a beautifully put together piece of music every week. We haven't had to reuse a single piece of music. That first episode we thought, I remember we were like, oh yeah, that's a great piece of music. We're just going to use it for the rest. But no, every week, every week new music and stuff and it, it's, it's insane absolutely mind-blowing so so john and kenny uh obviously they're they, the real they're the real heroes <laughs> they're, they're, like, they are, bow down. without those two dudes there really wouldn't be a two dudes i think you said that once at some point and that's definitely it, it deserves repeating yeah, several times uh for sure also just while we're shouting out people out your friend alex ford i mean he's he really was instrumental in helping us out as far as literally getting the podcast like put onto <laughs> like, other services <laughs> we wouldn't have known at all how to do this if it, if it wasn't for him like we would we would have had it made then we would have been like okay now what do we do <laughs> where is this going but now he he was such a huge help in, in helping us get this all sorted out and he actually uh his podcast griffcast just uploaded an episode not that long ago, so shout out to to that show, Griffcast, as well. It is very politically driven, so if you don't really like that kind of stuff, I'll just let you know up front, but uh, definitely shout out to them. Go check them out, and two thumbs up. You can't see it, but <laughs> two, two thumbs up. Uh, I'll have to check that one out, because um, I haven't... Admittedly, I haven't had the chance to check that out yet, but I'll definitely definitely give that a listen. Had to thank him. I'm in a often. couple episodes. You should check out the ones that I'm in. First. I should. <laughs> just, just, I should. Just, being, just, just, just being a little selfish there, but I like my episodes. No, I, I mean, it'd be a nice way for me to get into uh, get into the program, you know. And also, I, I, if I'm not like, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy thing. Oh, I also want to thank, thank Allison, my girlfriend, who I think for was being a, your girlfriend for being my girlfriend first, great. first, first and foremost, but also <laughs> after after several years in a relationship, it's just nice to be able to say, hey. Uh, can, can you provide the voice of a talking gorilla in the intro of my podcast? <laughs> like that's that's that, love. That listen, like it, uh, I, I did not imagine that would happen. Like five, almost five years. Like wow, I met, met her twenty, yeah, twenty six, twenty sixteen. We, you know, and that's that's pretty wild. So yeah, sh shout out to Allison. Uh, definitely the show's number one, um, number one fan. Not Brian. Not Brian. 
No. <laughs> Brian's dead. He fell in a snake pit with a snow leopard. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, um, you know, m- moving on beyond that, I know there is something for this pre-show that you really wanted to talk about. Well, first, I do want to say one other thing. Okay. Just, it's, it's completely off topic, but the other day I was at work, and I will say as time has gone on, I think people have started to get better when it comes or at least in some degree have gotten better when it comes to wearing masks at least in like some areas not all obviously but every now and then i'll still see people like coming into my work without masks on and last night i i I messaged you about this last night a whole like different groups of families like not just one family like different families all came in without masks on it was the most infuriating thing. <laughs> and even just them coming in while there were other people waiting in line with masks on. And, like, no one was distancing. Everyone was crowding around different spots. It was the most ridiculous thing. So before we get into what, you know, the other thing we want to talk about, I just want again, I, you know, because it, it needs to be repeated even now. Wear a mask. I know they're saying double mask. Double mask, too, as well, please, if, if you can. Just... Just wear one, wear a good one, and wear it properly. That's all. I just, I just needed to say that because it was just on my brain. Yeah, whenever I go to the, whenever I go to like my regular like doctor, like I have my mask on, then they give me another like you know disposable mask to put over that. So, yeah, I mean, just guys, I know you're tired of hearing it. I know we talk about it probably every week, and it just, just you know. Just wear your mask because at this point, yes, we have the vaccine, which is exciting. I know a few people who have who have the vaccine already. Same. I'm eligible for the vaccine at this point, but because of the extreme limited availability of the vaccine, I can't get it yet. I can't make an appointment yet. So at this point, the only thing we really have are masks and social distancing, you know, so just try to do that as much as you can. At the very least... It's it's not I'm sorry, it's not hard. It's it's really not. And I understand it it's it, it's something that you have to think about sometimes it's something cuz like maybe your just natural reaction is to just go up to somebody but just don't. Yeah. <laughs> just don't. Okay. But anyway, that now that that rant's over, I have another rant for you. Sure. <laughs> sure. So so the other day, right? I I've seen I saw a couple people sharing this particular tweet. Um, it was what was it yesterday when this when this guy tweeted it? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm seeing this ar- this article like a couple day a couple days ago. It was like from like the 27th or 25th, excuse me. Today's the 27th. So basically, it's it's this guy. He's like a New York time or New York Magazine art critic, Pulitzer Prize winner, whatever. Fine, professional credentials, whatever. Either way, he tweeted this tweet. Um, <laughs> I'm being kind of a dick right now. I do apologize, but, um, go ahead, go ahead and read the tweet, Joey, real quick. All right. This is the tweet quote. A good critic always puts more into writing about artwork than the artist put into making it. The artist only creates the critic must plumb that creation and also write creatively enough to deliver the full volume of of the art while also creating a thing of beauty and clarity itself, unquote. Now, listen, I don't want to downplay critting, critiquing, pardon me. I don't want to downplay that at all. (laughs) Critiquing. 
Exactly. See, I speak properly. <laughs> I don't want to downplay that at all, because it does take a lot to put into review. It it in a lot of ways it is very much its own art form. But to downplay the artists and the artists creating, are you like seriously, really? That's like, pardon my French, but that's absolute bullshit. <laughs> it's it's absolute BS. And even like some of the people that shared that tweet, like people like uh, like you know we you know video essay uh, creators on YouTube that we love, like Patrick Willems, Maggie Mae Fish, both were like. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, we put so much work into this video that's talking about the entire legacy of a particular filmmaker. Yeah, you hit it on the button there, sir. <laughs> it's now I. It's just it's just admittedly like I look at that and I'm like, really, really, guy. And I'm not a professional by any means, but I have partaken in both exercises. I've uh, written reviews and I've done my videos and i've also made short films and i've made skits and all types of stuff i'm gonna tell you right now it took a lot more for me uh to to make the shorts and the skits and the parodies and to put all that work in than it did to take the review to do the reviews talking about a movie that probably took two or three years to make and took a lot out of the particular filmmakers and i don't know like again I don't want to downplay one side or the other, but to, to do that itself, just to make your point. And then the worst part was as, as he was getting called out on this tweet, he kept like pushing the, the accountability onto like Oscar Wilde. Cause Oscar Wilde made this claim and it was like, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I agree with his opinion. I'm like, no, you brought it up, dude. You, you're the one that put it out there on social media saying, this is my opinion. And then when people started calling you out, you had to like push the, it was, it was stupid. Eventually he did say it was a botched tweet, but I don't know that like, again, I, I consider myself a little bit of a creator to some degree, like again, not professional by any means, but even so, like it, it irked me a little bit when I saw that. Yeah. I definitely think the way, the way it was phrased was definitely botched. Although I will, I will say, you know, being a critic, like people just think, I, I don't want to like generalize that, you know, people sometimes generalize critics as like, they're just, they're just snobs or sometimes they're just a bunch of schmoes, you know, talking about a, a movie and, that, and to, to an extent that's, we're just talking about movies on here. You know, we don't make any great claim to being, you know, whatever, yeah. but when you're, when you like discover like real, like true criticism, it is actually very difficult to write. It's not, it is. It it's is. not an easy endeavor to write, to, to do it well, you know, and because especially there, especially lately with things like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff, there's been almost like an anti-critic, anti-critic sort of like sentiment that's been, you know, on the rise. But to say that the, that the, that the artist merely creates is, is definitely, is definitely an insult, um, to artists everywhere, you know, just to, like Come on, dude. I again, no one's no one's disagreeing with your point that it does that it takes a, a lot of effort and you know creativity and emotion even to write a really good review. You know, you look at someone like Roger Ebert who 
definitely put a lot of himself into his own reviews outside of just you know reviewing whatever movie it was he was talking about that week he he bothered to put in the effort but i'm sure even he would look at that tweet if he were still around today may he rest in peace and he would probably uh, he would probably say yeah no um uh sir (laughs) excuse me a second (laughs) but did you just did you just diminish the uh the level of of work that goes into actually making something versus talking about the thing that was made i mean come on come on i don't know it just i saw that and it just bothered me a little bit i i I could definitely um i could definitely see why you know it's um yeah i mean let let, listen you know like I feel like in both positions, it's it's kind of like easy to just dunk on the critic sometimes because yeah. they they don't necessarily create in the way that the artist the artist does, and you know. But they still create. They do create. You know, it's a different it's a different method of creation. You know, and like I said, like other than like the artist, like merely like the first half of the tweet feels like a lot of like bogus. Like, but the second half, I feel like, or where he says the art, um, the the critic must plumb that creation and also write creatively enough to deliver the full volume of the art while creating a thing of uh, beauty and clarity itself. You know, I think there's definitely merit to that, but there's definitely merit to that. It's just the lead into that was kind of nonsense. Yeah, the lead in like, just, <laughs> like make like again make your point, and I and I I agree that critics put effort into it, but don't downplay the people creating the things you're critiquing. It's just, a, there's a lot of bad roads you took on that tweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so, <laughs> but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> other than those two things I just had to rant about. I'm fine. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> <sighs> uh, yeah. It's weird, this world we live in. Anyway, let's talk about some movies. Yeah, so this week we de- we decided for our, our season three finale. This is an idea that I that I was sort of proposing early, somewhat early on. We were, I don't know how long ago I proposed this, but I was like, you know what? For like one of these like season th- finales or whatever, we should talk when about, we, what? Yeah, was, when we decided to like kind of season the you know yeah. what I mean? Like when we like decided, yeah, I yes. do remember that. Yeah, when we were like deciding to do that, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know what? It'd be cool to have like, it, it, you know, again, it, there probably might there might be people who care about what our favorite movies are, but I thought it'd be interesting to. <laughs> I you, hope they. I hope maybe it, one person. I hope it, one person does. I don't know. <laughs> if not, it, it it'll be a nice like two and a half hours just talking about this. Just just the idea of like talking about our favorite movies. You know, and I also feel like too, when you hear about like someone's like favorite movie, especially somebody who's into movies, I think you can get a good perspective on the stuff that they value in a movie, things that they mm-hmm. that they they like to look forward to in movies and things like that. And I think our two favorite our favorite movies that we picked for this episode, um, I think they really demonstrate that. Like when I when I think of yours, I'm like, yeah, that's that's a that's a Richard movie. Absolutely the same with yours. Like when when we talk about your your favorite, like there's no question in my mind that I'm like, yeah, this this makes perfect sense. Like this is this is Joey to a T. Maybe not with some things because it's a little because obviously there's some data aspects, but 
<laughs> dated, not dating aspects. No, dated, dated. aspects. Yes, dated aspects. But the movie itself, and you know everything that the movie is ultimately is a hundred percent due to. And that film is 1933's King Kong. Oh, gorilla noises. Very nice. Very nice. Ah, dang it. <laughs> One day I'll get you. <laughs> Revenge is coming for you, scaring me all the time. You know what's, what's funny is like I, I'm an easily scared individual. As a kid, this movie scared me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of... Technically, it's a horror movie, wouldn't you say? I would put it up there. It's the best. Yeah, it's the best Universal monster movie that Universal didn't make. That's there you go. That's a that's a very apt description. Because a lot of the Universal monsters, they're probably more hum- they're more human sized, mm-hmm. a lot more like especially the early ones, a lot more gothic and you know very much like the European King Kong is is an American is an American giant monster. He's not based off of a book. He's not based off like a, like a specific literary character, you know. This was in the this was a uh, a creation from the mind of Marion C. Cooper, and was brought to life by the team of of King Kong. Yeah, King Kong is like one of those like movies that is like purely a cinematic creation, which mm-hmm. doesn't always happen. Like when we think about movies, a lot of the time, like the biggest movies ever are based on something. Like, they're based on yeah. some type... Like, The Wizard of Oz is based on a book. The MCU are based on a bunch of comic books. All the DC movies are comic books. You know, Gone with the Wind, you know, which is the biggest movie of all time, if you adjust for inflation, is based on a... a was the, a very popular book. This was not. This was not based on a stage play. This is a pretty... This is an original concept. Obviously, you know, it has some of the Lost World themes to it, but it, it doesn't have a specific... A specific, like origin like quite like the other things that i mentioned that is very much something worth noting because you're right there is just so much out there that you know like there's again a lot of great movies but not a lot of great like original blockbuster type movies that get a legacy like this you know what i mean right you know like it's it's funny to think that for the last few years before Endgame came out, the number one grossing movie was an original movie. Yeah. And yeah, it had, you know, the push of James Cameron. You know, this was like the next movie he'd done after so long of only having done Titanic, which was at that point the biggest movie of all time. And so it definitely, and that had, of course, you know, the, the ticket price of a 3D movie. So there is definitely factors in it. But even so, for the longest time, and I think people tend to like overlook this a little bit you know regardless of what your opinion is of avatar but the point is still for the longest time before you know the mcu ended their first big narrative uh the highest grossing movie of all time was an original movie and so like it's definitely worth worth commenting on that and you know any movie that's able to be successful and be an original movie I think deserves some kind of praise to that regard. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I got to talk about the people behind Kong for a little bit because, you know, they have, like, their lives, like, particularly Marion C. Cooper, like, you could conceivably make a movie about this man. Like, this dude, like, helped chase after Pancho Villa. This dude, like, crash-landed and uh, was captured as, like, a prisoner of war in, like, a Soviet camp. 
if I'm not mistaken. Then he went on to become a movie producer and felt like semi-documentary like filmmaker with movies like Chang and Grass. Um, and then obviously made film history by co-directing and you know co-directing King Kong with Ernest B. Sh B. Shodzak. And then I also have to talk about because this is the biggest legacy of King Kong are the special effects. Willis O'Brien, who is the chief technician behind uh, King Kong as well as uh, you know a bunch of other movies like uh, the 1925 Lost World, and then the 1949 uh, Mighty Joe Young, which had a lot of the the Kong team members on that. And won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, which is interesting to note because Kong did not receive any sort of honor back in, in back in the 30s, you know, and it was such a groundbreaking thing. Would you say that part of, I mean, not to, because I've never seen Mighty Jung, but would you think that some reason why it got that nomination ended up winning was because maybe they kind of felt they miss the opportunity with King Kong. I think I think that's definitely part of that, and that's a theme that you kind of sometimes get the sense of in the Academy. Like sometimes, like oh, if somebody didn't win this year, they might win for another year. It's like I still I still remember like when Wall-E and The Dark Knight came out in two thousand eight, and like there was a huge stink that those movies, because of you know what they are, like you know, genre movies, didn't get any kind of like mat. I mean, Dark Knight got eight Oscar nominations, but you know people were like why didn't it get best pictures so like after that they were like okay fine we'll give you 10 nominations instead of five yeah now it's like down to like nine or eight half the time like king kong like there was no oscar nominations and i would say like it's more memorable and we're you know more memorable than probably any movie that came out in 1933 not to discredit though some of those movies because there were there are some great movies from that year but like king like there is literally nothing else like king kong and for a very long time there wasn't anything else like king kong that's the one of the staggering things of this movie is like you get giant monsters you get giant dinosaurs in this movie and there were some here and there but you really didn't get stuff like that until king kong got a re-release and then people suddenly were like who grew up with king kong and people were like oh hey we can make these you know giant monster movies and that's when that really took off. But back to Willis O'Brien, like, he he is, like, certainly a me mega influence on so many filmmakers today. Like, you, th you think about all the techniques that are in King Kong, like, obviously predominantly stop motion. But you have the, re the rear screen projection, you know, and they use the optical printer a lot of the time, which, you know, helped put together pieces of the Im image together. Um, all the matte, the matte paintings that are in King Kong and just the attention to detail too, is one of the big things with this movie. Like we were talking about like the scene after Kong fights the T-Rex and you see the T-Rex is, is on the ground. It's still alive. It's still breathing. Like it's, it's yeah. It's like, it's like it's chest is going up and down, but yet there's still like blood like oozing from its jaw when, you know, King Kong just was like, just like ripped it in half, you know? Yeah. I mean, and there's, yeah, it's insane. It's crazy. And just also like the level of personality that Kong is afforded. I mean, you think for like, like a monster movie like this, especially, you know, from the thirties, you think, oh, maybe they just make it like a giant monster thing. But there's some really like beautifully subtle moments. Like one of my favorites that I always think about is when he's on top of the Empire State Building, that iconic sequence, he gets shot. Iconic. And he feels his chest and he's like, see, sees blood. You know, they kind of repeat that in the Peter Jackson version of this, of course. But like his exp expression on his face, I mean, even for being such like a like a crude 
thing to us now, I think still reflects that emotion um, appropriately and is just really beautiful. Or when he gets stabbed by uh, Driscoll when he's like trying to fish him out of like the cliff and he kind of, he look he looks at his hand, you know, just moments like that really just add a lot of character to this gorilla. I think it also says a lot that, you know, a movie from the 1930s can like, even with like the progression of technology and special effects and how a movie from that era with that era's technology and approach to, you know, having a big, you know, monkey on the big screen um, and how like years, decades, generations later, you know, people can still be moved by it. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you know what you're looking at is dated visual effects, but you don't think about that all that much. Like that's some like that's how like so many great like movies from that era have been able to last as long as they have because you know even even if you're looking at again just a a stop motion puppet you know carrying a stop motion you know and darrow uh you're still you're still affected by it Mm -hmm. so like i think and i think kong is definitely a great example of like a movie that has been able to at least in that regard you know transcend across generations one of the other th- scenes I also think about too, as far as like the detail, and I always point this scene out every time I watch it, is when they're in Kong's lair. Okay. Yes, you do. And but but you have to think about how crazy it is for 1933 to have all of those moving pieces going off. Like you have rear screen projected and Darrow. You have like lava like bubbling at the bottom. You have the smoke. You have the stop motion puppet of Kong. You have like what you're gonna and this is a, a detail that I didn't notice until much, much later, but you look in the water and you see like the ripples and you're trying to, you see yeah. like, the, the creature that's going to come out pretty soon. Just like, and we talk about today, like I, I always laugh. I think about like the producer of the prequels when he says it's so dense, every shot, there's so much going on. And it's like in, <laughs> in this shot, there's a lot going on, but it's enough just to give you the, give you that. This is a, a location. This is a place, you know, adds atmosphere my favorite as far as like special effects i mean obviously like you're saying the uh uh the end when they're on like the the empire state building anytime they're able to have it so that a real person is is able to be in the same shot with the uh with like the the stop motion puppet if they're able to make it work that's in my opinion the most impressed that i am cuz like there's definitely times you're watching it <laughs> and you can clearly tell they're in front of a screen. <laughs> right. And so it kind of takes, at least for me, it takes me out a little bit of it. So like, there's that bit when they're like walking on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you see the stegosaurus and you're like, yeah, <laughs> but, but if they're able to like mask it a little bit, have like shrubbery and have like something happening in the background, like that's when it's the most impressive, I think. No. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, I, and on that note, I, I think also, too, one of the, like, striking things with King Kong, there's no bullshit in King Kong. There's no fat in King Kong. Like, when you watch other other movies, I, I also think about, like, the Peter Jackson version. The, which three. which which version of it? <laughs> the, the, they're both the, over two and a half hours. hour? Or no, the, they're the, both, they're both over three hours, dude. <laughs> <laughs> they're both over three hours. <laughs> he had a lot to say apparently <laughs> and I, I get it, it's a passion project and all that but it just goes to show you like king kong 
it, it just it starts where it needs to, and it moves forward. They don't t- try to tell the story in like a, a fancy or overly complicated way. You don't like even when like they transition from Skull Island to New York. Like there's a whole thing where people are like, "How did they get Kong in the boat?" It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That's not. He's important. already there. He's already. He's there. That's how we got. He's there. there. He got there. Boom. Done. M- movie magic. Snap of a finger. He's there. Okay. Whatever. The script said he's there. Therefore, he's there. What else do you want to know? It's it's very efficient. And that could be attributed to the, the screenplay, which had a number of hands involved. Like Edgar Wallace, who was like a mystery writer at the time, was credited, but then he passed away shortly after the pre-production or whatever started. James Creelman had some contributions, but Ruth Rose, who was uh, the co-director, uh, Ernest Schotzak's wife, had probably the most impactful contribution to the script and really helped make what Kong is today. And it's just a very, very efficient movie. You understand the characters. Nobody is like an overly complicated, like, you know, masterclass. It's just like, you get who they are. You get who these people it's, are. They're very simple. Not, I mean, maybe not simple, but like, they're very like, I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't sound mean, basic, simple. <laughs> they're very, they're, they're straightforward. Very, yes. Thank you. Thank you. That's the best. That's the best one. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, like you said, it's no bullshit. They're, they're just who they are. They're presented as such. And, you know, you can almost argue that that translate, that, that transition, that character, you know, uh, uh, I, I am blanking on so much today. I am so sorry. But like the way that the characters are is what I'm saying has transitioned into like future adaptations a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. So like like when we talk about like the MonsterVerse movies, which we enjoy, we I, I could say I, I'd like to think for the most part some of them we enjoy. But there's one consistent issue is that the characters are just a little too, you know, bland. <laughs> They, they don't have much person. I think part of that is they just don't. Have, they don't get to have much personality, and like that's why I like I like Carl Denham a lot in this movie. Robert Armstrong, like he, you just get who he is. Like he is the, he's just the showman first and foremost. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's always trying to like he's always trying to sell you something, and like he's tr- like, he's trying to promote this thing as like oh the eighth wonder of the world, Kong. Here he is. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. We have chrome steel holding him there. But I think that's part of it. That, like part of it is like it takes so long to get to the monsters in some of those monster verse, particularly the 2014 Godzilla. It takes yeah. a while for us to really get the goods. King Kong like is like okay, we'll only make you wait like 40 minutes, you know, and then the rest of it is just non-stop. Like okay, after the 40 minute mark, basically or whatever, like. Kong gets Anne, they encounter a stegosaurus, and then, oh my goodness, they have to, like, th- th- there's, like, the, there's, like, a log sequence, and, and like, a, t- a T-Rex, oh my god, the T-Rex, he fights the T-Rex, and, and, and there's, there's, like, a, a, there's, like, a snake thing that shows up, the snake thing, a, t- a pterodactyl, oh my gosh, then he, like, rampages through the village, they don't, there's, there's very few pauses, they just keep going on and on and on and on and on, like, tor- till just the like, end, just, like, just, like, endless, like, like, just rampage. Uh, they get chased by a brontosaurus. It's like, oh, I guess they eat meat now, or like they they like <laughs> like chew them up like a rag doll or whatever. Literally, and uh, so many like so many people die. <laughs> a lot of just people like, die. Just in like pretty gruesome, the... pretty gruesome yeah! fashion too. Admittedly, like 
it like when you when you watch it too and you see like the bodies fall off the log and it's like yeah you know that they're like dummy you know puppets or like stuffed you know stunt things but it's still kind of it's still kind of visceral a little bit you know oh i think about the part where kong has one of the natives of skull island in his mouth and like yeah then he's you like cut, chewing then you cut away and it looks like he's like trying to drag it out of his drag sorry drag the native out of his mouth the man man out of his mouth and it's i just think about that like oh gosh that probably <laughs> looks really bad <laughs> Or even just, like, the bit at the end when he's climbing on one of the buildings and he just grabs a random woman that's sleeping. She's and they trying make, to take a nap, dude! And, and then he just it, drops her! They make it into a joke in the Peter Jackson version. Like, he just finds <laughs> random blonde women is like, meh, meh, meh. <laughs> Like, no! <laughs> she's trying to take a nap! She probably had a great dream about something... Being on Broadway, or at least in the Great Depression, having some money. And <laughs> and also, just talk about the like, brutality of this movie. Like, when Kong, like, defeats the, the, the T-Rex in this, and he snaps its jaw. Ugh. Ooh. And, and then, oh, especially when, like, he's... It's not so much that he just snaps it and he's done. He's pulling. He is, he is trying. He, and, like, the more he rips, the more, like, he tears the the cheek of the dinosaur and the more blood starts gushing it is violent and in most mo- like if you made that today you would have like 35 zillion cuts and you wouldn't be able to t- you could tell what is going on that's one of the things i like about the fights in this movie is they- they're staged in such i mean because they couldn't do a bajillion like cutaways because it's stop motion and it takes long enough to shoot the damn thing as it is <laughs> so <laughs> So they're just that you have to shoot it like that, where it's just like, okay, this is like a window. We're looking at it. There might be a few cuts here and there to change things up, but overall, you get what you get. Listen, we're not doing this again. <laughs> we love doing this the first time, but we're not doing it again. We're not doing it. We again. threw her out the window once. That's it. That's it. <laughs> or I think about the train sequence. The train sequence is also horrifying. Like at, oh towards the God. end of the movie, and. From what I've heard, that scene wasn't supposed to be there at first. They just added it in there just because, like, the, the, some, like, superstition or something. I was I, so What? I, it's been a while since I watched the documentary, but, like, they that wasn't supposed to be originally in the movie. And it's just, it, 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 it's in the movie, and it's just so horrifying. And Kong didn't need to do that. It just happened. <laughs> he, he just walks up to it, and he's like... <laughs> and it's like for, all right for 1933 it's like startlingly like like disturb disturbing like when he's like crushing that trade the people are like ah! <laughs> oh, those poor people on that train those 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 poor uh th- those poor souls on that train but i also want to just give a few other notes before i get to fey ray um one of the the big things of this movie outside of the special effects are is the sound design and the music music done by max steiner um he did the music for for like gum of the wind casablanca i believe he won his oscar for now voyager he did a bunch of movies you know and it, this is you have to understand this was 1933 so sound is very young at this point as far as a mainstream way of watching movies they more or less just started adding talking yeah to movies by this point let alone having a whole you know orchestra playing a theme song for you in the background i mean they're, they're just kind of figuring that stuff out a little bit a lot of the time like the music in movies 
back then was very diegetic, like, or, or in the opening credits, you know, like when you yeah. watch the first Frankenstein, you hear the music in the opening and the ending, and there might be a little music at, for like a celebration portion of the movie, but that is, that's within the, the story of the Done. movie. That's it. In King Kong, there are moments of diegetic music where like you have the native drums or you have like maybe like the, 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 um, you probably have like an orchestra at like when Kong's like premiere happens or whatever, but a lot of the music is non-diegetic and it's just there to ramp up the excitement. And it, it's, it, I, I still think it's pretty powerful stuff. You know, we, yeah. we've had decades of like film scores, you know, we've had, you know, obviously we've had so many iconic film scores too. Like, you know, obviously we think of John Williams, like you were mentioning John Williams when we were talking about this and, all the different like iconic scores that he's done, like you know Superman, Star Wars, Harry Potter, you know the list goes on for the like iconic themes that he's done. But and it is it is really crazy to think about that too, like how it was such a like you know new thing for people. Like we we just think of music these days; it's like it's just a part of the movie, you know. But back then, it was it had to have been like such a like crazy thing to just go see this movie in theaters and then hear the music just be like wow like that's wild this like that had to have been like a talking point when people were leaving the theater they're like that music was pretty it was, it was really exciting and i also want to give a shout out to murray spivak who did the sound effects for for this movie and we think about like people who worked on like Jurassic Park and they talk about all the different like animal combinations that they had to use to like make like the raptor noises and, and things like that. But Murray Spivak, like there was no real like blueprint to do that by that right. point. I mean, really like on a large scale, like you think about all the different sounds that you hear in King Kong, like you, you hear like all the different dinosaurs and creatures on Skull Island, you hear Kong making his like his grunting noises and the way his chest pounds and it has to also work out with the music pretty well as well so for 33 it's nothing short of unprecedented they think that very well actually they do a very they do a damn good job um of that uh and i also i i definitely want to talk about fey ray at this point the uh the our our our, our central character i guess you could say and, and, I mean, Faye Ray was putting in a lot of work between 1932 and 1933. She was doing a lot of movies at this, at this era, you know. That, so you've got stuff like, they were shooting um, The Most Dangerous Game at the same time as King Kong. Or they were, like, she was also doing, like, Dr. X and, like, Mystery of the Wax Museum. There's, like, think Vampire Bat's another one. And there's, that's only, like, a fraction of the stuff she was doing at that time period and i've i've only seen a handful of those movies <laughs> which surprises me which i think i mentioned last time we talked about this well because like there's a lot of them that aren't available on disc as far as i know like i know no. she did another movie with like cooper and Shodsack, the four feathers which i had to see in a theater i saw it in the film forum they had a print of Ooh. it and they had uh, a piano player like playing ice when that was that was when i saw king kong in 35 millimeter and it was a really cool experience because that movie doesn't have an official DVD release as far as I know. So being able to see that was definitely an experience that I really treasure, you know. So 
right uh, being able to see more Faye Ray is just always great and I think she she does a really good job with this part especially for how often she gets crapped on in this movie <laughs> oh yeah yeah for sure I mean can we talk about that for a second <laughs> yeah let's talk about that yeah because listen they I mean again it's the 30s they already are very you know misogynistic towards women it's just kind of hysterical at this point just to see like how they interact with her the entire movie like even like I mentioned on Letterbox when I reviewed it, just that bit when they first get on the island, and they're ta- and everyone's taking the cargo out. They're like picking up these large boxes and cameras and tripods, and then here comes one of the dudes carrying <laughs> carrying Fay Ray to the island. I'm like, oh my god, did they just carry her like the cargo? She couldn't have walked onto the island herself. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. And then like, oh my god, then the scene. That was such a such a rocky Adrian moment. <laughs> so just when she when she's like leaning on the boat, she's just minding her own business, and here comes uh, Driscoll coming up to her. Like and they start talking, he's like, you know, I guess I love you. <laughs> and like the preceding like thing where he's just like, ah, women can't help but being a nuisance. And he accidentally he accidentally hits her, and he doesn't even feel that bad about it. <laughs> and then he dips her for a kiss, and then and then all the guys are like checking it out, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm doing it." And you're just like, "What is happening right now? <laughs> what? Oh my god!" I, I think the part where I, one of my favorite reactions from you was at the end, where they say, "You know, uh, you know, uh, Ann Darrow and her future, future husband, uh, uh, John Driscoll." <laughs> like what (laughs) (laughs) they've only known each other for like three days listen man the 30 the 30s were crazy (laughs) (laughs) like i like how disney movies like like in frozen they they have like like that commentary bit about like you know love at first sight and like falling in love and whatever they ain't got nothing on this movie (laughs) this movie's literally just like within three days she meets the love of her life and marries him right then and there. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> it was the funniest thing. And it was, you were telling me when you saw it in theaters, like any time a moment like that popped up, people were like laughing. Oh, people were laughing. Like, like the, I think the the people where people laughed the hardest was when they, was when he was just like, say, I guess I love you. And, <laughs> Cause it was so, it's so awkward. It's so awkward. You know, it, it, it it's, yeah, there, there's definitely that element. And also, obviously, the element of the damsel in distress, like, being taken away and having to rescue right, them. And yeah. that's a, that's a, con- that's not just a King Kong thing. That's a, a movie that's trope. A, that, that is a full that's a sto- on, like, that's yeah. That's a story trope, trope as old as storytelling itself, you know. Um, and, but she is the scream queen for a reason, man. I mean, that scream is so iconic. Listen, you know, if we'd ever had people like Fay Ray. We wouldn't have, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Nev Campbell, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, because she, you know, had a really good career in horror as well. Like, just so many iconic uh, actors who've, you know, are within that pantheon of Scream Queens. Uh, she is definitely, like, the OG. And with 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 the pipes that she has, whew, 
it rattles you. And and it, what's really funny is I, I look on her letterbox page, right? And I just want to see how many, uh, what percentage of her movies that I've seen on letterbox. And they credit her in Son of Kong and Mighty Joe Young. She she's not in those movies. Her screams are in those movies. <laughs> and keep this in mind, that Mighty, says something. That's that says something. Mighty Joe Young came out like sixteen years after Kong, so it just goes to show that goes to show you like. Just like they kept using her scream in so many things, and actually, when like when I saw Kong, they had like a Q and A with Ben Burt, who sound design on like you know Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and he played right. a lot of the archival like screams isolated from the movie. It was really a treat, and I hope there's like a Blu-ray at some point where we get to hear those like some of those sound effects um, in isolation. I I will say I probably won't do that on a on a consistency basis. Cause I don't want to. Just a blood curdling scream. Just, it just. I'll listen to it once, and then I'll be like, "That was pretty dope." And then after a while, I'll just be like, "Yeah, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to be screamed at." <laughs> so I think now that we've talked, we've addressed the the misogyny and the, like, the sexism aspect. I think we got to mention the other, the other uncomfortable thing with uh, with King Kong. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about time for that. Um, we're two white guys, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're getting into the territory of, of race. Let, let, let just be said, King, King Kong has a lot of like outdated, um, outdated viewpoints on race. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic given the whole plot of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I even like anytime I think of King Kong and like the, like whenever like we ever talked about the races stuff or like any of like the views on racism or anything like that. I always think of that scene in Inglorious Bastards when they're playing the card game. You remember that? Yes, yes. And um the one uh Nazi or whatever's got King Kong on his head and as he's guessing what it is that he is, um and he guess he guesses that he is the uh the African experience in America or whatever and they tell him no and he's like that I must be King Kong. And I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, listen, like, you have, obviously, with the, the, the black, you know, the black representation in the movie is is just, like, it's just the natives, pretty much. Yeah. You know? It's just the natives. The natives on Skull Island. And, um, and, and also, keep this in mind, too, what was fresh in people's minds. I talked about that movie, Ingagi, where it was a movie about... Uh, an exp- an expedition that they claim where they found you know a tribe of Africans who offered people as human sacrifice to gorillas, and they went even further than that and talked about like other shenanigans that happened. But King Kong doesn't really get into that. But just the mere idea of like some of these natives are dressed up like gorillas, you know, and they're all like gear all geared up like so- like a scene out of the Jungle Cruise, which that's also receiving changes. Uh, pretty soon thank god mm-hmm. <laughs> good job um <laughs> keep took, doing that took you took you long enough took you over 60 years to to do that in <laughs> disneyland I, I think it all like that needs to be said too like obviously you mentioned like the the, the black experience uh, yeah in, in america you know i mean king kong you can there's you can certainly apply that allegory right he is this guy with the white woman you know and at one point they say oh we're willing to trade six of our women for this one blonde white woman, you know, and stuff like that. I also, I just want to mention too some of the people that are in this movie that they do get credited. Um, I just want, I want to mention Noble Johnson who plays the native chief in the movie 
and uh, Steve Clemente, uh, who plays the witch doctor in the film, and listen, like they, their their job wasn't easy. You know, they had, I'm sure it wasn't the most um, uh, uplifting experience of their lives. Oh no, you know? yeah, I don't imagine that they were like incredibly excited about it. But at at the same token, they were part of like the principal cast. Like when you watch this movie, you see them top. They you see them build with the rest of like you know a lot of the, the other like white people in this movie and especially noble noble johnson gives a hell of a performance in this he has such a huge presence like lar- he's a tall dude he has a larger than life presence on screen um and sort of like talking about hetty mcdaniel and gone with the wind because she gives an amazing performance in gone with the wind but it's also as the mammy character and that has its own set of issues so i i, I yeah. just like to sort of end this piece by I also want to bring up bring up Victor Wong, who plays Charlie the Cook, so he should be mentioned as well. But with all these people, like you deserve all the accolade, accolades that you didn't get, and so much more. So that needs to be said. I mean, and also too, like you you think about it too. A lot of these people also got jobs during the Great Depression, which is is a crazy thing. But of course, you know, you would rather like, them. You, yeah, you can't you can't help but think about how like yeah, it was probably great to have a job during the Great Depression in a in a movie, but at the same time, you know, to be what they had to be for the movie was more than likely a little degrading. For sure. More than likely yeah. a little upsetting. So, like you there's there's no questioning that at all. Like I th- one of the th- examples I think about, I think about like because Faye Ray's daughter, uh, Victoria Riskin, is still alive. And she talks about, like, you know, seeing her mom in, like, so many movies and whatnot. And I think about, like, what do the families of, like, like Noble Johnson, like, Noble Johnson's descendants think about when they see him in other in other movies? Or when they see, mm-hmm. or descendants of, like, Victor Wong, what do they think of, it, like, him and, like, his appearance in this? Because his f- appearance is very stereotypical, like, Chinese character with... The, the broken English and, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, yeah. He also gets to, like, both Noble Johnson and him get to appear in the sequel, too. <laughs> it, it, you know, so I think that's worth worth mentioning. But, like, definitely, they give great, like, they do the best that they can with right. this very problematic um, material, you know. And I and then that's, that's something I have to deal with, too, with this movie. Because it is, as I've said, it's my favorite movie. I don't think a movie... You know what? Yeah, I will say this is this is a weird transition, but I will ask, um, and I'm not asking because of what we just talked about, but like, what, why, why, why would you personally say this is your favorite movie of all time? Well, you know, I think I, I think part of it is like you, like the stuff that you grew up with, or the stuff that you find in your collection or whatever, is the stuff that'll stay with you the longest. You know, um, my dad had let like when he passed, left behind a ton of VHS tapes. So like, you know, Die Hard, Citizen Kane. Um, you know, uh, the Universal Monsters, of course, were a big one. And King Kong was one of those tapes. And I remember, you know, it was after he passed, I watched I watched that tape. I remember watching it on, you know, a 12-inch, like, built-in VCR. And this is a kid who saw, like, Jurassic Park, too, as a kid. And I loved Jurassic Park. And, like, seeing King Kong, it was such an electrifying, exciting experience. It scared me as a kid. Just hearing all, like, the, the, the screaming... And just like the black and white and like stop motion too is a very crude process. And just like the the crude nature of it just can't be replicated by digital technology. So seeing King Kong and the way he moves and the way he's brought to life is it just such a startling thing that it always sort of stayed with me. 
you know. And I also just think, too, like, it has those problematic elements, too, which I didn't really think about as a kid. Because I'm a kid. Yeah, you're, eight, you're, I'm, I'm you're, eight years. you're a child. You're not thinking of, you don't, you, you don't even know there's anything wrong right now. No, I'm just thinking, you know, there's some dinosaurs and a giant gorilla. But, like, I also just think, too, King Kong was, like, my first, like, true introduction to classic film. Because as a kid, I saw the stuff like Wizard of Oz, which is a classic movie, and a bunch of the Disney films are a bunch of classic movies. But King Kong was, by that point, the oldest movie I had ever seen. You know, and it was, like, a, a more serious movie. So it was really, yeah. like, the gateway drug. Like, literally, there's a gate in King Kong. It was it's literally <laughs> the gateway drug into everything else. You know, because and, it, it, and that is and that is the biggest distinction I think between you and me as far because I th- I do think we have a lot of similarities as far as like the movies that we like or the movies that we approach or you know how we how we view movies. But as far as our taste, I think that's always been the biggest distinction is that you love a lot of these older movies and you know you were a big fan of TCM and you're a big fan of you know, checking out a lot of these movies that came out well before either you, me, or even our parents were born. This was before my grand, my, this was before like my, my, my grandparents, my dad's side were alive. Yeah. (laughs) They were born like later on, later on in the thirties. But I I also just think too, it's just an exciting movie. Like, like I said, like as a kid, you see Faye Ray and she's just such a, such a pretty lady. And you like you, Carl, Carl Denham is like, you know, Oh, I'm going to, oh, oh, the greatest thing in the world. Or like, see, like, we're going to capture that. Thing. And even, even Bruce Cabot being the, the, the dumb character that, that he is like, <laughs> you're just like, Oh, he's this, he's this, this tough guy. He's such a tough dude, you know, whatever. And you see dinosaurs and you're like, Oh my gosh. And I remember one of my favorite stories too, um, was I went to my grandparents' house, my grandfather, Pop. Uh, he was like, hey, Joe, you want to see King Kong? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I thought he meant the 33 one. He put on the 70s one with Jeff Bridges, <laughs> and I was bored to tears. He wasn't because he liked Jessica Lange in the movie. But uh, shout out to Pop. Uh, rest in peace. But it, it was just one of those <laughs> things where I was like, was it? Hey, <laughs> was was it like a was it like a like a like a crack like a sandwich a cracker sandwich moment where like you think you're gonna eat the peanut butter one but it's the cheese one it just is such a upsetting sensation because your brain was so prepared <laughs> for peanut butter and then no no it's not peanut butter it's cheese <laughs> yeah that's my thing like like to me King Kong is like the top shelf like the real like the really good stuff you know and, and I watch a lot of and you know I watch gorilla movies and like King Kong oh yeah like yeah. the best the original King Kong even with like a lot of the problematic things which i acknowledge are problematic yeah they're problematic it's very problematic but it's still the most entertaining it doesn't waste your time it's a hundred minutes it's only 104 minutes because of the overture which was definitely a different thing for us because we don't usually watch movies with overtures no that was different yeah very different but it just beginning to end it just it just captures you especially when i was a kid it captured my imagination you know and it definitely influenced me on like the kinds of things that I really enjoy. I love the jungle. I love, you know, Indiana Jones and like adventure and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And I love giant monster movies and King Kong was definitely, you know, ground zero as far as all that kind of stuff, you know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's again, you watch King Kong and there's no question whatsoever that it's, it's the, I call it the Joey movie. Yeah. (laughs) Midas again, Midas the problematic, you know, you know, nonsensical sexism, and of course the you know very problematic racism. It's still like the 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 Kong himself is is 
like you know we were talking about in the last episode the monsters that you know are there for us and the monsters that you know are kind of our you know our guides if you will kong is definitely yours i would say yeah no absolutely i mean i have a whole like kong shrine in my man cave i got yes, kong, you do. kong poster <laughs> ever still, growing like um you know one of my things is like my my dad's tape of kong it has like it's one of those like you push his chest and it roars for some reason that mechanism was missing so i bought another tape on ebay just to insert that me- put that mechanism into that tape so i could re- sort of restore that experience basically mm-hmm. i have so much merchandise of king kong i have I, I i have like advertisements from when they were trying to release the 60th anniversary tape you know i have like lobby cards or posters from when janice films was re-releasing it and it, it, it's it's something i do definitely try to like i'll occasionally look on ebay to see if there's any like really cool like obscure kong stuff that i can find it's just it's to me it's still one of the most exciting movies that i've ever seen it really has shaped me into who I am today and who I will be from this point on, or from that point when I saw it almost 20 years ago, from that point forward. So uh, definitely, if you want to learn about me outside of the the racism and sexism <laughs> of this movie, outside of the awful that aspects. needs to be said, like the stuff I like, I like a giant monkey fighting airplanes on top of the empire state building and even when i go to when i used to go to new york and i think that's another thing too with the pandemic like i haven't been to new york in a very long time so going to to watching king kong seeing like the empire state buildings gives gives definitely gives me chills you know uh definitely a location that i miss so shout out to uh the city of new york anyhow we're gonna take a intermission um i'm glad (laughs) that that (laughs) batman forever still has the distinction of being longer than this half but this is still quite a long time (laughs) to talk about king kong so go go figure it's that it's that movie that (laughs) we talk about longer than we talk about king kong (laughs) you know and i was trying to be as restrained as i could i was trying not to bring up like the lost spider pit sequence which is a whole other conversation again it's fine it's cool it's fine. <laughs> Maybe I'll even talk about that on the YouTube channel in the future. But for now, we're going to leave you. We're going to climb the building for a bit. And when we come back down, when we're not shot down by airplanes, we're going to talk about Richard's favorite movie of all time. And another favorite of mine as well. Stay tuned. <laughs> And we're back, folks. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. But we do have some really unfortunate, uh, sad news that literally we just heard about. The great, iconic legend herself, Clarice Leachman, has just passed away. It's, dude, it's, it's, 
it sucks. Yeah. She she was amazing. She was absolutely fantastic. And obviously, you know, she, uh, one of her most iconic roles in, is related to the movie we're talking about today. She played Frau Blucher in Young Frankenstein, which was... It wasn't the first thing I've seen her in, but it was it was kind of like surprising, like, you know, because obviously I always knew her as, as an older lady and like seeing all the movies that I saw from my lifetime with her in it. But then to, you know, see her uh, in her in her younger days playing so many iconic roles, even playing uh, OG Hippolyta before, you know, Connie Nielsen took over the role in uh, the Wonder Woman movie. Um, she was the original Hippolyta on the '70s Wonder Woman TV show with Linda Carter. Yeah, that's right. Um, that uh, just leaves behind uh, an incredible legacy. You know, um, I uh, just want to wish you know, say uh, our condolences for her family and friends uh, at this difficult time. And of course, rest in peace, Cloris Leachman. You legend. You will live on forever in these amazing movies. And in our memories. You know, she was nominated for like 22 Emmys. I'm not surprised. And she won eight of them from what I was reading. Academy Award winner. I mean, really just hell of a legacy. Hell of a legacy. Hell of a career. Hell of a human being, you know. Uh, and it's it's always just... <laughs> it's always just... At any time we, we talk about something sad like this, it is like when, when Joel Schumacher unfortunately passed away just to transition into the next thing. It's, it's always weird. But, you know, that... Yeah. We're just going to do it. And and just get get it done with. Let's talk about the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> yes. So this is a favorite of mine, but this is your favorite movie of all time. It is. It is my favorite movie of all time. And it wasn't. It wasn't a movie that I saw like with you with Kong. It wasn't a movie that I grew up with or anything. Like I didn't really even watch a lot of the Universal monster movies until much later on. But. Because obviously, if we were going to talk about a movie like that, it would be Batman. But we already talked about Batman. But this one is definitely, without a doubt, my favorite movie. It's it's got everything I I like about like the like this particular genre, like horror type movies, and it, and it t- it takes so many turns and it and it tries so many different things that you don't expect, especially in the horror genre or even a movie of that era. And, you know, just from, and also just from a technical standpoint, like the, the set dressings, the lighting, the, the costumes, the makeup, like just again, from a visual standpoint, this movie is gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, the, the performances all around, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, Boris Karloff, you can't not mention Boris Karloff in, in his performance, his return performance, as the monster and of course um uh you know getting a Colin Clive to come back as Henry Frankenstein which uh I didn't know and this is a, another kind of unfortunate thing that he ended up that he died well after like this was his last movie I didn't know that yeah I think off the top of my head did, did he did he suffer from from alcoholism or or something yeah I think yeah I think it was alcoholism and like some like depression and just like a combination of unfortunate things um and that's that that's unfortunate that's incredibly tragic obviously i mean and and, like in both movies i mean he takes maybe more of a backseat role 
in this film because of all the outlandish things that you get. But in that first movie, he's amazing. In both movies, he's amazing. But like, especially that first one, I think it needs to be said. Colin Clive, a plus performance in um, in Frankenstein. When you think of that first Frankenstein too, you always think of that that famous, almost infamous in some regards line when he's like, um, you know, when he's his like, it's alive, it's alive. You know, we think of that all the time when we think of Frankenstein adaptations, like like this guy in a lab coat screaming, "It's alive!" But of course, uh, with the added addition in, uh, for him of, "In the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God," which you know obviously was pretty controversial at the time. It was cut out of a lot of like of of prints of that movie for a very long time, so people didn't get to see that line for I think a while. And uh, and speaking of the actors too, I mean, it's the Bride of Frankenstein. So we have to talk about Elsa Lanchester. Yes. For the bookend performances that she has, because she's in the end of the movie, she's in the beginning of the movie. Even though she's only in the movie for roughly 10 minutes combined with her two scenes, maybe, she stands out so much. She's a very... In the best possible Very way. iconic um, iconic performance and iconic makeup by Jack Pierce. Listen, Jack Pierce, makeup artist, like... The man who laughs with Conrad Veidt, like that iconic face that would influence the creation of the Joker, or the Frankenstein makeup, which is still unsettling to this day. The makeup uh, for Boris Karloff in The Mummy, and of course, my personal favorite being his work on Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. Just all, and then this one's a great look too, especially given that there's not that many female universal monsters. Like, the only other one I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Countess uh, Zaleska, who's uh, Dracula's daughter, which came out a year after uh, Bride of Frankenstein. When you look at the when you look at the visuals and you look at the style, like I didn't know that I that was her actual hair, like the way that it was styled, like it was like a bird cage or something. Oh, really? I didn't know. I didn't and know. Then, it was and her then hair. her, wow. Yeah, I thought it was a wig. Like there, I, I imagine there there was some pieces added, like the white streaks, yeah, right? But like. Like that was that was uh, Elsa Lanchester's actual hair, and then like with like some kind of cages, which I didn't know. That's pretty wild. I thought that was I I thought that was yeah I thought that was pretty crazy. Um, and then also you're, we're talking about Jack Pierce. Like apparently, uh, you could tell I just watched uh, a, a couple of the bonus features on the Blu-ray and a couple of videos, but like um, just to refresh myself on a lot of things. But apparently, uh, he was he was an interesting person. Jack Pierce. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like like just to, to say the least he was an interesting guy. Uh like anytime they showed up to like get their makeup done like they couldn't say hi to him. He had to say hi to him first. He always had a like a lab coat on as if he was like the as if he was Dr. Frankenstein making the monster himself. Dude, my, my favorite picture one of my favorite pictures of all time and I probably try to share it every time I see it is Lon Chaney Jr.'s in the makeup chair for the Wolfman, right? And he looks at Jack Pierce, and he looks like he's ready to, like, punch him in the face. He looks like he's so mad. Because <laughs> that make a lot of those makeups, as wonderful, as amazing, and as imaginative as they are, they were a real pain in the rear to, to put on and apply. It took hours <laughs> to do, especially with Lon Chaney, because, like, they had to style the hair, and sometimes he would get burned or whatever, and he was just... He just I just wanted to like punch him in the face sometimes. <laughs> just that picture. It's like I'm tired of this. Okay, I'm tired. But I've actually remember I've seen like foot like um, on set footage of like Jack Pierce and Boris Karloff, and they look like they got along 
pretty well. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, there's, like, Son of Frankenstein, like, color, like, on, like, home video footage where it's just, like, they're, like, playing, like, almost like a peekaboo game or something, like, something, like, <laughs> if I can find it, I'll have to, I'll have to send it to you, but it, it's, um, you know, do you, I mean, if there's, if there's, if there's someone that I, I imagine could have, uh, not to say that Karloff was in any way, like, as eccentric or as weird as Jack Pierce was, but... I mean, Karloff is one of those guys that just has a presence. Yeah. So, I mean, he probably would, would have been the one to be like, you know, actually have some kind of chemistry with Jack Pierce. I also think there's a there's a level of admiration, too, because Karloff, Karloff wasn't a leading man before Frankenstein. And then, then Mummy, the Mummy, he's top build is like Karloff. Like, his name on the Mummy poster is ginormous. Like, you don't see that. You don't see that that often. No. Like, and it's so I think a lot of that he does attribute. I mean, obviously, James Whale got to give him credit too for casting him in the role, but like Jack Pierce for applying that makeup and, you know, doing, you know, Jack Pierce is definitely a, a legend in that regard, you know. A hundred percent. I think the thing that stands out the most with this movie, as far as like why it's my favorite movie, like I was saying, like it's, it's one of those movies that is so different than anything especially within that era or that genre or even that particular franchise it just feels so different in the best possible way like i think about the first time i watched the first frankenstein which i watched before bride obviously Mm -hmm. and you know it was very much what i expected it to be it was gothic it was scary it was spooky had uh, dramatic lighting uh obviously karloff and colin clive were fantastic dwight fry as as fritz not Igor Fritz, which is always fun. It's kind of like uh, you know the whole fact that you know we think of Victor Frankenstein because that's the you know from the book and you know all the other adaptations. But in this, it's Henry Frankenstein, which has always been like the kind of interesting little tidbit. Um, but you watch that and and you get ex- almost exactly what you're kind of expecting, almost exactly what you're expecting when you go into like first watch Universal monster movie. Then you watch Bride of Frankenstein, and it's so different. It's so different. Like I think of, like when I first saw, uh, what what what's her name again? Una Una O'Connor. Una O'Connor uh, playing Minnie, who's like kind of the the house maid character. The first time seeing her, and how outrageous and how silly she is, and you and admittedly you don't really know at first. Like, am I? Is it? Am I? Is it, can I laugh? Am I supposed to laugh? <laughs> like, is this is this the right emotion? Because like this is very funny. Yes, and she's very funny throughout the movie, and so to get to that point <laughs> and um, see, like, especially because you know you get that like kind of nice, also very unique kind of opening sequence with Mary Shelley played also by Elsa Lanchester, um, and that kind of like intro but also sort of a like a, a previously on kind of thing like you get on tv yeah. shows and then of course you know we're at the aftermath uh the windmills burnt everyone thinks uh the monster's dead and we and literally two people die immediately like two people are dead already it's the the parents of i'm assuming the flower uh, girl of, of the little of little maria yes yes so the parents of the of little maria are dead now and then the next thing you know, 
he runs into Minnie, and then she's like, oh, 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 oh. Well, my favorite thing is just Karloff's expression. He's got like this stone face, and he's just like, okay. All right. <laughs> no expression. <laughs> but I, I have to think about, because I think about like uh, Abra Costello meet Frankenstein. There's like outtakes where um, Lou Costello is on Glenn Strange's lap, who played the Frankenstein monster in that movie. And he does like all these, uh, Lou Costello's a funny guy. So I imagine like a Glenn Strange kept cracking up. So you see this big dude just like laughing at, <laughs> at, at the song. <laughs> so I have to imagine that there were takes where Karloff was just like... <laughs> Just literally just watching it going oh, are you sure about this James <laughs> <laughs> is this what we're going for like yes just do it it'll be great trust me okay <laughs> it's it's so just hysterical and it and it keeps up with like the strangeness when especially when we meet Pretorius who's a completely original character not based on anyone in the books and basically almost like a like a like a devil type character just coming up and which obviously he references a little bit at one mm-hmm. point coming up to henry and just like listen i'm very intrigued by what you've done here let's team up and let's do it better and i'm very much paraphrasing on that but once he once he enters the picture like that's when things really start to take off and he shows Henry the first experiments. And this special effect blows my mind. Yeah. For like a movie from the from 1935 to be able to do this and to be able to be- make it believable and make it work. Like you don't think about like, like there was not a point watching this movie and any of the special effects. I'm kind of like rambling a little bit, but where there's not a single point watching the special effects where I was like, oh, that's clearly how they did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I could more than likely figure out how they did it but at the same time it's just that's the best thing it's just like the magic and being like you know the illusion working and even still working yeah because i think about that was obviously king kong was our first movie talk about the special effects because today we just say that was a computer and maybe sometimes there's like an animatronic or some level of of green screen involved and to extent some of that applies here but in like a, a different way but it's it's done in yeah. such a manner, and plus it's in black and white, so sometimes they can kind of almost in a way mask some of that. Yeah, and I met it met and very impressive. I met I can't imagine what people in 1935 were reacting like. They had to have lost their minds, like right when he pulls the little jars out, and you see like the little queen, the little king who's a little pervert, <laughs> the little bored bishop guy, the the mermaid, the little mermaid, the, the exactly. The Little Mermaid, <laughs> <laughs> wanting to be where the people are. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's right when you see that effect. It just—it's so insane. Like, and then even like to have one of the characters come out of the jar and then like run across like the like the 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 t- the tabletop or whatever and start like banging on the other one, just going. <laughs> like to the the king to the queen and whatnot um but that was insane but it's stuff like that that just really makes this movie stand out and obviously a lot of that comes from universal just letting james whale do what he wanted and i i, I kind of love when they allow that well because you have to understand too 1931 when they put out dracula and frankenstein those were massive 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 hits for them 
obvious. I mean, to the point where today we're still talking about these movies, and people still know when they think about Frankenstein, they think about that iconic Jack Pierce makeup, you know, and and things like and things like that. And this was a couple years. This was 1935, so four four years after, um, four years after Frankenstein, and. I think James Whale was was a pro like I think he was going to do Showboat at some point. I think that was like thirty six, you know. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't just doing monster movies, you know. He he did other stuff too. He wanted to do like more like bigger like excite like musical or theater. Like he wanted to do more of that kind kind of movie as opposed to like horror movies. As many as he's done, you know, it wasn't like his his main goal. No, in the types of movies that he wanted to make. And so, obviously, Universal coming up to him and saying, hey, would you like to do a follow-up to Frankenstein? And him going, not really. And then, they, and then obviously, that golden conversation with any, like, studio producer letting you do a, a follow-up with probably more money, more, uh, more, just more in general, saying, what if you, this time you just did whatever you wanted? Mm-hmm. And then that that's, like, the golden ticket moment. Like, we talked about in... Batman Returns and how in a lot of ways like Batman Returns is more of a Tim Burton movie than Batman is. Right. Or it, you know in that same regard like you know I how I've always kind of felt like The Dark Knight feels a lot more like a, a Chris Nolan movie than Batman Begins does. So I always love it when you know when the sequel rolls around and uh there's as a little bit of reluctance on the director's part to want to make another one then they're like you know, sweetening the pot by saying, you know, what if you just did this? Just did whatever. And admittedly, there are times that it might work, it might not work. But this one is definitely one that works. We, we talk about, you know, every now and then, uh, these iconic sequels, you know, like Empire Strikes Back, or again, like The Dark Knight. Or, Godfather Part 2. Exactly. Godfather Part 2. Like these, these sequels that... Paddington 2. Yes, should be up there. You know, that were just, you know, follow-ups to great movies that were even greater in a lot of respects than the original movie. This is, like, the the OG example. Yes. You know, this is, like, one of the one of the earliest, if not the earliest, like, sequel that I can think of that not only is a great movie in its own right, but I would argue is better than Frankenstein. I love Frankenstein, but I think I, I just... I think I definitely prefer Bride. I think Bride, yes, Bride is a better movie. I think with 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 Frankenstein, part of it too is it's an early sound film, 1931, even yeah. older than King Kong. And I talked about in the last part where we talked about Max Steiner and the score. Frankenstein doesn't really have that. Frankenstein has music at parts, and sometimes the silence is very effective. Like when I watch. Uh, the zoom, like the like the, when they cut into Karloff's face when we first see his makeup in the first Frankenstein, that still gives me chills when I see that because he looks like a, a a living corpse with his like his gaunt face and like with the appliances all over him and whatnot and just the great job Jack Pierce does and the performance Karloff's delivers, but there's no music, you know, and sometimes the music can help build anticipation and build um, moments. Like I think about the third act of this movie. And it is so exciting. And I think about, like, things today where they have, like, a billion and a half different things happening. This movie, they're just trying to bring this lady to life. That's what they're doing. But there's so much going on with that. They have to put out... It's ugh. just... It's just the way that it's framed, the way... The lighting of it, like, the, the Dutch angles, which... 
get at it. Like, come on. That's just fantastic. If you can use a Dutch angle right, it's a great thing. And the way that they do it in this movie, again, with the, with the incredibly dynamic lighting, you know, like the, the up, the up light kind of lighting on their faces or, you know, all the different, like, you know, light bulbs and, and, and Tesla coils and the kites. Shout out um, and, briefly uh, to Charles D. Hall, who's production designer um, on this film and many yes. other, and basically made what we think of mad scientist laboratories, like as we think of them today. Sorry, I just wanted to briefly mention his name. No, it's, it's, it's warranted 110%. Just everything that, again, it's a simple act of, <laughs> simple <laughs> act of bringing someone back to life or to life to begin with. But the, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, um, everything that's happening within the scene itself, it's just so thrilling. And then you get that nice score. Franz Waxman, man. Oh. Oof. And then right, oh my god, right when you get to that moment after Pretoria says, The Bride of Frankenstein. You know, credits. <laughs> <laughs> when you get to that moment, and then you get the, 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 that, that great music, the da, 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 da. And you hear like a little like wedding bell sort of thing, like, dun, dun, dun. like it, it's so, mm-hmm. it's so, and the, I, I sometimes with the score too, like the King Kong score is great. But it, it it's very much what it is, and the the Bride mm-hmm. of Frankenstein score sometimes is like kind of like a wink, a wink and a nod kind of score, especially when you have like the moments where it's like, yes, a woman, and it's like, woman, it's like the score is like nudging you, like, hey, this is kind of funny. I no that anytime anytime a character was I don't know I didn't mention this on King Kong but anytime a character was running and it was like no King Kong is very is very much like Mickey Mousing where like the the act the music matches the music the action matches the music so like the scene I think about was when they're running from Kong and dun 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 and then it stops when Fay Ray drops like dun and then like this movie does a little bit of that but i it's uh it's and you could tell like 1935 they've they've clearly i don't want to say had their act together because it makes it sound like they're dumb or something but like they they clearly (laughs) they they finally got they finally understood what they needed they they understood what they (laughs) what they needed to do um so franz waxman really deserves a lot of credit for that great some great scores too and also just is that the the bride theme song the you know mm-hmm. yes like i always love when a movie has like a really great theme song and that's the scores i tend to remember the most like superman indiana jones like a lot of those john williams yeah. scores like we were talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. um that are able to like have a central theme for a character and then have that weaved in through the the entire score of the movie so like you know, anytime, like, even when Pretorius was just picking up the skull, that would be the skull they use for the bride, and he's introducing it to the monster, and you hear the, like, the, you hear that music, like, I, I, I always love when there's a theme song for a character that's kind of sort of repeated a few times throughout the movie, but, like, organically, it's not, like, repetitive or anything. Um, I just also want to mention, too, we mentioned a number of the other actors, like Colin Clive, uh, Ernest Thesiger as Pretorius, um, Boris Car- Who's amazing. Pretorius is one of the best Pretorius characters. is an excellent, excellent character. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about uh, Karloff. I know we mentioned him before. 
he speaks in this movie. You know, his monster has a voice, um, and he gets a different look in this movie. He doesn't look as gaunt because, A, Karloff was probably eating more because he was a big movie star now. And he he didn't take out his, like, dent, dental appliances from his mouth like he did in the first one to make him look gone. Because he didn't have to speak in that one. But now he's talking, so he's got he's to be able to sound, you know, legible on some level. They do keep the little dot on his chin yeah. to, to add some sort of, like, shadow or shading. Yeah, they have a little so bit. It's, so it's still, it's still consistent, but it's obviously not as, not as drastic. workable because, because he doesn't have the indent in his chin. Or not his chin, but in his cheek. Um, and he actually wasn't a fan of that idea of having him talk. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't want him to talk. He he liked the idea of keeping it mute and keeping the character silent to just grunts. But honestly, I love the fact that he's able to talk in the movie. I I I I I, I kind of like that, like the character progression to go from to how he was to like kind of evolving. That's that's always how I've viewed that monster is that. He's a tragic figure. Mm-hmm. The best interpretations of Frankenstein is that he's a tragic figure. And whether he's incredibly articulate, which is faithful to the book, or in this case, he speaks in small sentences, small words here and there, just you know, trying to get the English language as best as he can. There's no doubt, though, that he is a tragic character. You know, he, he was forced, in a way, to become who he is you know he he didn't ask to come back to life um which he even says like i love dead hate living Mm -hmm. and especially so because all all that happens to him is that he's hunted like he's chased by mobs and and he's he's almost crucified at one point or at least it almost looks like he's going to be crucified and then he gets thrown in jail. He gets thrown in jail and chained up like our, our, our big gorilla in the last movie. And he's able to escape. Exactly. They, and, and I love it. Like the Burgermeister in that scene is like, ah, oh, you know what? We don't want to spend all day doing this. I'm like, clearly you should have spent a little more time if you didn't want this guy to escape it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> You're not doing a great it's job. It's like in the last movie. Oh, he's, he's got chrome steel. Can, could you spend a little more money with that $10,000 box office advance to make sure this thing doesn't escape? And then start throwing women out of windows. Oh my gosh! Oh, but but and of course I got to talk about uh, the blind the blind man. As great as that scene is, and you'll agree with me on this, because of another Frankenstein movie, we can't help but giggle a little bit. I can't help but think of Gene Hackman but, in <laughs> Young Frankenstein. Mel <laughs> Mel Brooks has effectively ruined one of the most sincere scenes in Pride of Frankenstein. Because now, anytime we think of that scene, we think immediately of Gene Hackman, <laughs> and that's a great, funny, really scene. funny scene. <laughs> like, like even just the part when he lights the cigarette and his thumbs on fire, <laughs> <laughs> or like the the clinking, like the like the cheers uh, of the glasses, and then he just plows through his cup, and it's just a handle at that point. Yeah, I mean, the scene itself is still works, but. Just because of con, just because of like other interpretations and other things that you've seen, it's just it's hard not to think of that. No, absolutely, but it definitely does provide us with a scene where somebody's at least showing the monster some level of 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 sympathy. Whereas the rest of the movie, it, it, it's just all like, "Ah, oh, get this thing away from me!" or or just somebody like Pretorius who's like, "Ooh, I could use this to my advantage, and I will manipulate you without you knowing it." Ooh. And then while I do that, I will smoke this cigar in this crypt 
while I laugh hysterically about the machinations and the machines and the creations that I am concocting. <laughs> Speaking of that, though, I want to talk about the more subversive elements of this movie because this movie, like I, I talked about earlier, like the scene, I, or the scene where like they cut out the line. I know what it now. I know what it means. To, feels like to be God or whatever. Yeah, this movie has like a dozen. A lot of those. Uh, so so many <laughs> so many things. Uh, like the scene where he's like, he's like you know, or God, if you like your Bible stories. Bible stories. That that dude, the 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 genius of some of the things they were able to like work around because obviously you know, the there were certain lines or scenes in the movie that were more direct, and how they kind of talked about religion. Like for one, being like. Uh, instead of saying Bible stories, he said fairy tales, but saying Bible stories sounds a lot more condescending, mm -hmm. which is just fantastic in the, in the, you know, you know what yes. I mean? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to offend or, or when he, or, or when the monster knocks over that, like that one religious statue, the bishop, the bishop um, yeah. and I think there was, I think they might've tried to shoot this or there's, a, I think there's a photograph of him, like sort of leaning against like Jesus on the cross yeah, they were saying that um, initially it was going to be him seeing Jesus on the cross and thinking it was like him because he was strung up on the on that pole. There, he thought it was someone else who was being persecuted, and then like he gets pushed over or something or whatever. But instead, they ch they changed it to him just violently pushing over a bishop statue in a graveyard. And again, it's just a little bit more. <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, we won't be direct, but we will still be very uh, offensive to some people. Or, um, I, I again, we were talking about like the scene you were mentioning before we got into this, where you see Pretoria's drinking wine amongst like bones and the, just death, and is that's just such and a, just reveling just in reveling it, reveling in it, such a such a like strange uh, image, and just like the dark comedy in this movie in general, like when they're talking about like where they got the heart. <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's so dark <laughs> and that was supposed to be apparently that was supposed to be a whole subplot yes did you know yes. that it... i didn't know that it was supposed to be a whole subplot with uh to add more uh to, more to do to dwight fry's character in this one which is what's his name like carl something yeah he's like, carl like dave, he's Car dave. <laughs> dave. <laughs> he's, he's... He could be a Dave. I don't no, know. No, but uh, Dwight Fry is very is very good in a lot of these movies. Obviously, he was Renfield in Dracula. He was Fritz in Frankenstein, um, and a number of, some of the other sequels and whatnot. But and he's he, even though his role is smaller in this one, he does a good job as Carl and is appropriately memorable. I st oh man, I still love that bit and his delivery when they're like when Pretorius is like you know go get go get the heart, and uh, Frankenstein will pay for it. I'll try. <laughs> I, I love it when he like he says something and they like they, they like they just stare at him. It's like what what gendarme? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he's like, I got it. Where did you get it? Um, from a police case. From a police case. <laughs> yes, it was it was awfully tragic. We have the heart though. Let's get to work. Um. <laughs> It's just, it's so, but that, that, that's like an uphill battle that, that Kong faced as well, because that like when it was released in 33, that was sort of like the beginning of when around the time when the production code was starting to come into like a more major force. But 
when um, they re-released in 1938, they were a lot more strict. Like, the scenes where Kong is, like, stripping Anne who had to be removed. There was a lot of scenes of violence, as we talked about in King Kong, that need to be removed and cut out. And some of those scenes weren't restored until many, 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 many years later, where we can finally, we can see them in, like, HD and with very clean prints and, and restoration and all that. But before, when you had to see those scenes, it was very scratchy and, like, from, like, an old, like, a weird, like, archival print or whatever so mm-hmm. you know like both of these films are definitely like in some form or another a victim of like the production code or like they had to be affected by the production code in some way yeah but you know it brings me back a little bit to the com- like the 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 kind of off the you know off the topic conversation we had about the birthday song a little bit you remember that yes yes i do and how like i completely agree that it was kind of annoying to just like not just saying a happy birthday, but you gotta, you gotta give it up to like the creativity that people could come up with in, in order to work around certain problems and even get to a point where your point is even more made. Mm-hmm. So like in the case with this, like we were talking about, talking about, uh, you know, them deciding he's going to push the Bishop over or, you know, some of the scenes in Bride of Frankenstein that, you know, maybe to them at the time didn't think of like, didn't think of like a, like like to be a huge issue or even just stuff from the script because that was the first thing they, they they read was to see what was in the script and be like okay i don't know if we can do this or this or this so then when they film it that's a bit of a different ballpark mm-hmm. right so it's just like at that point it's like okay we won't do what's in the script i promise we won't do what's in the script i'm telling you right now <laughs> <laughs> we will not do what is in the script you have my word. <laughs> and and all of that is like everything about this movie, obviously, just like the the kind of more obscure nature of it, the comedic aspects, the dark comedy, the the, the kind of the genius angles. And it's I'm surprised we it's kind of really taken oh, it's, it hasn't really taken us a second. We talked about it a little bit, but a lot of that is really attributed to James Whale. Yes, absolutely. And just the the absolute genius the man was um and the way he uh put a lot of himself especially into this one like this is again like we were talking about directors kind of taking over truly taking over uh in follow-ups like this is by far a james whale movie and just like the themes and and the tone and the narrative and even just like the the theatricality of it because i mean he he worked a lot with like stage Mm -hmm. And like doing a lot of doing a lot of that stuff, so bringing that sensibility to it. To, I love this movie. <laughs> it's it's just it's it's got to be said. It's just, I I do genuinely love this. Can movie. we also just say too with the runtimes of both of these movies? Like Kong is like a hundred minutes. This movie is seventy five minutes. There is not a wasted moment. And everything and everything matters, and everything is important, and everything adds up to something. Yes. It's it's kind of amazing, yeah. Because to like be able to do that, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. It's just crazy to think that movies like long time ago were usually like seventy five or eighty minutes long. It's like, everything's two hours now. Everything's at least like two hours, like twelve, two hours twenty minutes, or something like that. All the big movies are like that, and it annoys me. Especially, yeah, especially these like big franchise movies. And again, there's a lot of movies that are two hours that I love. But it's just some of the best movies like tell their stories in the best possible way, 
and they don't need any of this excess nonsense that maybe to a degree might help one movie or another but this movie was able to 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 move you scare you make you laugh do everything that it that it wanted to do in the time that it that it had and it did it beautifully mm-hmm. yes it's it's ridiculous i'm not saying all movies need to be shorter but i'm just saying it's possible it, it's definitely it's definitely possible dude what i love like it, it's possible peter jackson <laughs> I don't mean to single you out, but Peter Jackson. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, Peter Jackson! But what, what, like, with I love with this movie and and the first Frankenstein is you could watch it as a double feature, and it still comes up shorter than a lot of other movies. Fun fact: the la- one of the one of the coolest experience I ever had uh, at a movie theater was actually going to see a double feature of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I remember you telling me this. Yeah, it was. Because, you know, I see all the time, or maybe not so much anymore, but I see all the time a lot of those, like, TCM, like, Fathom event kind of things, you know, like, hey, we're playing, you know, these bunch of movies or these bunch of movies. And uh, it was literally around the time that I was really kind of getting into the Universal Monster movies. It was, like, a little over 10 years ago now. And uh, my friend Christy had never seen... Uh, either Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, and it was Halloween. So I said to her, "We're going to see these movies," and so she was so excited. We sat, and we watched them. It was honestly watching them on the big screen was kind of that moment. You know, it kind of sounds cheesy, but it was kind of that moment where I was like, "Yeah, I think Bride of Frankenstein is probably my favorite movie now." <laughs> Just it's, this is really, really good, and it still holds up on the big screen, which is crazy. No, that that's that's amazing. Um. As I've said before, I saw Kong on the big screen. Like they had a thirty-five millimeter like print of it, so it was obviously like a little scratchy, you know. And it wasn't like you know crystal clear like on Blu-ray, but it was an re- interesting experience also seeing with an audience. And I was supposed to see it on the big screen because TCM was going to have a like a big screen screening of it last year, but COVID happened, and we yeah. just um, that was like yeah, it was like March, March around that around that time where it was supposed to happen. Uh. So it was kind of. Uh, I know I yeah. I now that you mentioned that I remember you talking about that and that sucks. That sucks cuz cuz like now that like if when if or you know obviously not if when 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 I get a vaccine when <laughs> I want that yeah. shit. I kind like if there's like depending on how things are I kind of want, if they're still doing like the rent a movie theater after a vaccine I kind of want to rent a movie theater so I can just watch Bride of Frankenstein again. On the big screen, that that would be that would be me with with King Kong and some other and definitely some other older movies because so, there's some older movies older movies where like even if TCM like TCM does like a good job of like putting out stuff on the big screen but some of that's only like the mainstream stuff like there's some stuff like well, I saw Four Feathers you know that would probably not get screened by TCM or you know like it would probably be screened by like like I went to the film forum to see that more like a smaller like you know right you know smaller independent like theater house um but yeah that was so that was the moment where that sort of like clicked for you that this was like your favorite it was it was probably the moment that it kind of that it kind of just made sense because i think it was one of the first like older movies that i could think of that like had a lot of things in it that i never would expect to see in a movie of that time period yeah and on top of that just how entertaining the movie still is how funny it still is, how like effective everything still is. Uh, again, especially for 
the time that it came out because I I like I was talking about earlier how you know as far as like our tastes like you definitely love older movies and know a lot more about older movies than I do um and to uh uh to a degree a lot of my favorite movies are very much movies that either were around or were close to when I was born mm-hmm. so like you know like I mentioned earlier like the, the other movie I'd probably mention is Batman like Batman and Bride of Frankenstein are almost like neck and neck for like top spot with Bride of Frankenstein just edging it out for me personally. And I didn't really watch a lot of older movies when I was younger. I'd seen maybe a few of them, but I don't know. I just, again, when you're a kid, at least for me, I just didn't, I was, I wasn't used to that. Right. I was used to like color. Um, like the, the standout was like wizard of Oz because wizard of Oz was in color. Yes. So that one could kind of get away with, and I, I'm sure I've talked about this too, but like that one could get away with seeming like any other movie that I'd seen because it was in color and because it had some some sort of modern sensibility to it. Or even movies like, you know, Pete's Dragon, we talked about that. Like that was another movie that um, I watched a lot when I was younger, mostly because, again, it was in color and it had some of those things. I wasn't really used to seeing like older movies that really had that kind of like a like a sort of timeless sense to it or sort of a a more modern sense to it that you just didn't see in a lot of those movies and then obviously watching Bride of Frankenstein years later like in my early 20s like that's that's how soon it's it was really um to now uh it it kind of changed a lot for me and like it really kind of like opened like like for you Kong was the kind of that gateway drug to watching a lot of older movies. In a lot of way, Bride of Frankenstein was kind of that as well. Just seeing like, wow, this is what you know they could do back in the day and do really well and still be effective to this day. Like that, like that is amazing. Yeah, I mean, like again, without without Kong, I wouldn't have gotten into, really into like Godzilla or or like um you know like the Ray Harryhausen movies and and so many other so many other things. So. It, and it, it it's just like it, it really does like it's amazing how much like a movie can click with you at like the right time, you know whether it be you know on the big screen at like a double feature TCM event or whether you're watching a VHS tape of a movie on a 12 inch TV at an impressionable you know young age. One thing with the both with both of these movies too is that they're both unrequited love stories. Yes, the monster is yearning for some type of um companionship that and he gets rejected at the end that's the thing like the bride like hisses at him and is just frightened <laughs> you know or with king kong obviously like his feelings are never reciprocated you know in, in this it's just it's just and screaming and she's like i can't stand to to, to look at him you know, and thinking about it's he's it's 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 so traumatizing. And you think about like uh, what he tries to do too. Like I didn't mention the other part, but there's a scene where he's trying to get like a flower, but it's such a brief instant, and it just cuts back to the action. And he he just spends the movie trying to defend her from these monsters or trying to get back to her, you know, and try to hold on to her. Um, so it's these stories of these these monsters that unfortunately, for one reason or another, are not allowed. To, to be loved. Tragic figures. It's very, very tragic figures. And these are definitively our favorite movies ever. Boom. There you go now. In case you were curious, those are our favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Folks, what are your favorite movies of all time? What are movies that 
really touched you or impacted you in a huge, huge way, we definitely want to read about them. And we will, if you, if you talk about them, we'll mention them on the show. I know we keep saying this, but if we read any comments or whatever, we'll mention it, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, we're both on letterbox. Uh, just, just, you know, let us know what your favorites are, man. Please, please do. Please do. Anyway, that wraps it up for this week's episode of two dudes, one double feature. Check us out for our season four premiere next week. Have a good night, everyone. Thirty episodes down. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this show. We greatly appreciate it. Please follow us on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, John and Kenny Armstrong, you guys are amazing. The show wouldn't be anything without you. Thank you so much for everything that you do. And of course, a hint for next week's double feature. Wait, we're going to talk about video game movies? Okay, sure. Thank you.